This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. It's now time for A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. From amazing stories to colorful personalities, join us as we go in-depth with the men and women that make up the Oakland Athletics Organization. It all starts right now. Welcome to Unfiltered with Chris Townsend on A's Cast powered by TuneIn, joined by... We like to call him one of our A's historian. He's from ESPN, the Pac-12 Network, and so many different things that he does. He also works for Major League Baseball, Dave Feldman. We're going to be doing top 10 A's second baseman of all time. Really been looking forward to this list because how you're going to spin this is going to be interesting. You know, second baseman in the history of the Oakland A's, uh, there's been many of them. And some guys that you might not even think of who are known for other teams who have played second base for the A's, and there's a lot of personal preference here. There's a few guys at the top who are, you know they're going to be there. Those other guys, for me, personal preference, maybe I have a story or two why I think they're in the top ten. Because when I think about second base really in the history of baseball, it has been more a defensive position. It really didn't become an offensive position really till look at the late 90s and you start thinking about what was going on at that time with PEDs. But for the most part, in the history of baseball, it's been a defensive position. Yeah, defense first. You always heard that with your second baseman and your shortstops for the most part. It was always defense. But then you start seeing these offensive second basemen a little bit in the 70s with like Davey Johnson and Bobby Gritch. Uh, it became more so than with the Roberto Alomars in the 90s, uh, guys who you expected to put up big numbers. The A's have never had the huge hitting second baseman, but they've had very good hitting second baseman, um, guys who have been more than just a glove. All right, one of my favorite things when we do this is the guys who are not your top ten, who are your honorable mention. These are my honorable mention. This, this time we're going a little different. We're going guys who – not known for being Oakland Athletics, but we're Oakland Athletics second baseman. And we're going to start with Manny Trio. Manny Trio came up with the A's in 1973 and played a little in 74, much known for playing for the Phillies. How about Joe Morgan? Little Joe finished out his career with the A's in 1984, the Hall of Fame second baseman. From Oakland. From Oakland. Tony Bernazard, longtime Indian second baseman, came over in 87. Glenn Hubbard. Glenn Hubbard was the A's second baseman in 1988. He was Game 1 World Series starter, second baseman, Glenn Hubbard. I think of him as a brave, right? Always. How about this guy, Willie Randolph? Game 1, second baseman, 1990 World Series. Willie Randolph, longtime Yankee. Never thought of as an A second baseman. How about Steve Sachs? Steve Sachs was the A second baseman in 1994. Ten years later, how about Mark McLemore? You know, longtime infielder in the American League West, came over in the A's. Uh, and then we would be remiss... If we didn't mention our dear friend, Shooty Babbitt. A's second baseman, 1981. Billy Martin brought him to the team. Played a little bit. Didn't hit a whole lot. By the end of the year, wasn't playing at all. Wasn't even on the playoff roster. 
But how about this? Billy Martin got special consideration from the American League and the Yankees so that Shooty Babbitt could sit on the bench during the ALCS versus the Yankees. So even though he wasn't on the roster, he was allowed to be in uniform and be part of the team. As he says, there is no league bigger than this league. And, you know, the funny thing, I, I've, I've had conversations with Shooty. If Shooty came up today, things could be different. Guys were judged offensively different. Like like now, you don't have to hit for an high average and you can be around. No, and Shooty could have got on base. He had speed. There's a famous video. This was in the Kingdom in Seattle where he hit a ball in the gap and he's running out of triple. And he's around second. He's blowing a bubble as he's rounding the base because he was just he was a natural athlete uh, unfortunately shooty never got a major league chance after 81 uh, i would have liked to see what he can do more he obviously with a name like shooty babbitt fan favorite right away the energy that he plays and that's why he's loved now he's just he's a ball of fire and everybody loves him all righty is that it or are we going to your top 10 it's time to go top 10 all right we're gonna start at number 10 how about frank menachino again frank Part of the A's for over five years, 99 to 2004. He was the A's starting second baseman for most of 2002. A guy who came up through the White Sox system. The A's picked him up in the minor league draft. 2001, 12 homers, 22 doubles, drove in 60 runs. He's on the playoff roster in 2000, 2001, 2003. Even pitched one time at Coors Field when the A's needed somebody. And, and Frankie was that guy, Staten Island. Look like you're New Yorker, typical guy. How did he end up going to college in Alabama? I cannot imagine Frank Minichino in Alabama. But Frank was just, he was one of those players, especially on that team with the, you know, Jason Giambi and Eric Chavez and Mikel Tejada. He was a guy, he was the grinder on that team. Not a natural talent by any means and worked his butt off. And everyone loved him because of the way he worked. Very good defensive player. Um, I will tell you this little story in 2001. Uh, the A's had clinched. And this was after the, the break for 9-11. The A's ended the year in Anaheim. And Art Howe, the A's manager, had all the media out to lunch. And we're having a nice lunch, and he's taking questions and just, you know, really shooting the bull. He's having a good time. And we asked him, what's his biggest concern going into the playoffs? And he straightforward said second base. He said between Frank Benichino and F.P. Santangelo, he thought that's where the A's were the weakest. That, that 2001 team was stacked. It was a great team, probably the best team in that run overall. But if there was one weak spot, it was second base. But I'll still give it to Frankie. Frankie had a tremendous year that year. And again, being that kind of that glue guy and that hard worker. That kind of tells you how ridiculous baseball was at that point when you're worried offensively about second base. Yeah. I mean, seriously. And, you know, the FP Santangelo ended up starting game four and made a huge error that opened the gates for the Yankees. And you'll talk to FP today. And that play, that error is still one of his biggest regrets all of baseball. Because, again, Corey Lytle was on the mound. Uh, if the A's get out of that inning, they may shut them down. Maybe that game goes differently. Uh, second base, it, it, you know, Art Howe was proficient. He knew what was going to happen. And FP made the big error, and, and it really hurt him. Our friend FP Santangelo, who's now the color guy for the Washington Nationals. All right, number nine. Number nine is Brent Gates. Wow. Brent Gates, a 1991 first-round draft pick out of the University of Minnesota, switch hitter. Uh, he was a great college hitter. And he came into the system. Lance Blankenship gets hurt. He was the A's second baseman in 93. And they bring up Gates. And Gates ends up hitting 290 that year. 290. And Tony LaRusso, the A's manager, says, this guy's going to win a batting title some year. He, he was that good because he was locked in from both sides of the plate. Not a big, powerful guy. He had seven homers that year, but he could double. He could drive in runs. He actually finished sixth in the rookie of the year. 
But after that, injuries really curtailed his career. Uh, he got injured in 94. He hurt his thumb, hurt his knee. Uh, that was one of the reasons Steve Sachs was brought in, uh, because he needed somebody. Uh, 95, he's back. He's playing most every day. Uh, he's got good power. He's got 24 doubles, five homers. But then 96, breaks his leg in June. Uh, we all talk about uh, Jermaine Dye in those 2001 playoffs when he fouled the ball off his leg and got the spider fracture. Brent Gase did the same thing. He hit a ball off his shin and broke his leg and was out for the year in June. It was it was a nasty, nasty fracture. And that was pretty much it. That was pretty much he finished a little bit with the Seattle in his major league career, but never had the career anybody thought. He ended up being a longtime high school baseball coach um, back home in Michigan where he was from. He had five kids. Uh, all his kids were athletes. Uh, two kids, two of his daughters are uh, – on volleyball scholarships in college. And then his son, Brent Gates Jr., who played hockey at the University of Minnesota, drafted by the Anaheim Ducks. So you'll be seeing him in the NHL pretty soon. But Brent Gates, a career that got cut short, but he was a, he was a very good player and a very good prospect for those mid-90As. Those fractures that you talk about, it's so gruesome when you see the replay of you hitting a ball down onto your leg and it breaks your leg. The pain that you must be in is just unbelievable. Yeah, you know, you see these guys wearing the shin guards, right? And you see the leg protection, but it always seems to miss. It always seems to hit that one spot and it's at that downward angle at a high rate of speed and it just fractures right away. I, I can't imagine the pain these guys go through when those balls hit their legs like that. And you see other times, same thing happens and they get up and they, they're batting and they're still playing. It's, it's amazing what they go through. Number eight. Number eight, Randy Velarde. Randy Velarde came over from the trade with the Angels in uh, July of 1999 with Omar Olivares. Uh, took over second base and just a gamer, just a hard-ass gamer. I mean, this guy, he was locked in from the from the minute he took the field in 2000. 278, 12 homers, nine steals, and this was after missing the first month of the season. The A's uh, played a couple exhibition games in Vegas that year. And uh, in the Friday night game in Vegas, he was running out of ground ball and actually injured his knee stepping on first base. So he missed the first month of the year. Uh, I actually got Frankie Minichino a little more time there. But he was – this guy was a right-handed power hitter for them. You know, you don't think of Randy Velarde as a power hitter, but 12 home runs doesn't lie. And you had a left-handed base team with Ben Grieve and Jason Giambi and Matt Stairs. This was, you know, this was left-handed, so you needed some balance from the right side, and Randy Velarde gave that. Uh, my favorite Randy Villardi play. Memorial Day, 2000. The Yankee Stadium. Yankees at runners at first and second. Unassisted triple play, Randy Villardi. And, and this is the best part about this, by far. Okay, it's a line drive to Villardi, catches it, tags the runner coming from first, steps on second, triple play. Everybody's excited. What does he do? Flips the ball to the umpire. Unassisted triple play. Why are you flipping the ball to the umpire? What are you doing? We see Randy later that night at the Grand Hyatt Bar in New York, and the whole team's there just having drinks, whatnot. And Randy, what were you thinking? And he, he would always have kind of a Texas draw, and I will do a terrible impression of it. But he's like, <laughs> well, I was thinking I was coming to bat that next inning. You just had another triple play. You flipped the ball. This is history, and you're what are you doing? I'm thinking about my bat. Oh, Randy Villardi. He actually left the A's after 2000. Uh, the A's traded him to the Rangers for Aaron Harang, but he came back to the A's in 2002. 
Again, he suffered an injury, fractured his hand in April. So he wasn't that much of a part of that team. But he was on the playoff roster and actually against the Twins in the 2002 postseason went three for five with an RBI double. Uh, but he was just, again, for those teams in the early 2000s, which were wild personalities, guys who were just having fun, having a great time. Randy was a little bit of that old school baseball player, always concentrating on his next to bat, as we found out, uh, and really, again, gave that balance to that team. And he was absolutely strapped. I mean, he was, I mean, he was, you talk about a guy lifting weights. I mean, and, and the funny thing about that triple play is nowadays they grab the baseball, they're going to put the sticker on it, they're going to send it to the Hall of Fame. It's so different how we're looking at the history of the game as it's being played and to make sure that they that they put the stickers on it, authenticate it, and make sure that it gets to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That ball would have gone straight to the Baseball Hall of Fame from New York. You're already in New York, but you would have gone uh, to, to Cooperstown. Yeah, and it was flipped to umpire Rick Reed. And honest to God, I have no idea what happened to that ball. I don't know if Rick Reed just pocketed it, and now he has it in his collection. I have no idea. But it's just a mindless thing for Randy Rillardi, end of the inning, not even thinking that I just pulled off one of, some, one of the rarest feats in all of baseball. I'm just going to flip it to the umpire. Number seven. We talked about a lot of guys who were not thought of as a second baseman. This guy is one of those, but he was here for three years, and that is Davey Lopes. Davey Lopes was acquired from the Dodgers in February of 82. Uh, he was already 37 years old when the A's got him. But again, in 81, you know, between Shooty Babbitt and Keith Rumright and Dave McKay, they really didn't have a second baseman, and Billy Martin wanted a second baseman. And Davey Lopes, even at that age, was still a good player, wasn't the base-stealing marvel that he was back with the Dodgers, but he was still able to get on base. And in 82, he played well. He had 28 steals. He had a walk-off, bases-loaded walk on opening night here at the Coliseum, Don Ossie. Uh, but he only hit 242. Uh, wasn't a great defender. His range was kind of gone. He's uh, back for 83. Had a really hit a resurgence in 83. Hit 277 with 17 bombs, still stole 22 bases. Played a little bit more in the outfield in the 83 because Tony Phillips had come up, Donnie Hill had come up, so they were moving uh, Davey Lopes around a little bit. And in 84, he played the first 72 games of the season with the A's before they traded him to the Cubs uh, for advantage of being Chuck Rainey, who was a bad relief pitcher who had never liked seeing on the mound because he always gave up runs. But Davey Lopes, uh, as an older second baseman, really solidified that position. And again, in 84, think about this. The A's second baseman were Joe Morgan at 40 years old and Davey Lopes at 39 years old. That was your second base combo. It's, I mean, you think about Davey Lopes being part of one of the greatest infields of all time, all those years with the Dodgers, and just these names that you think about great players that ended up with the A's is just absolutely fantastic. Davey was always one of the good guys. All right, let's go to number six. Number six is another one you might not remember was an A's second baseman. He's one of Bob Melvin's favorites. And that is Phil Gardner. Phil Gardner was the A's 71 first-round pick at the University of Tennessee. Ended up being the A's everyday second baseman after uh, who's going to be later on our list retired. He was the A's everyday second baseman in 1975 and 76. He was a 1976 All-Star. This guy was... in 1976, with the A's sold an American League record, 341 bases as a team. Phil Gardner stole 35 steals, 35 bases. Have you seen Phil Gardner? He's kind of a short, short, stocky guy. Scrap iron. Scrap iron. This guy is buff. He's not a base dealer. 
35 steals. This was also your, you know, Sal Bando was in the high 20s. Don Baylor was over 50. Everybody on that team stole. Like 341 stolen bases. Still the American League record. They also got caught stealing 123 times. So think about what the sabermetric people would think about that team with that percentage. They'd be flipping out. They'd be going crazy. Look at all these outs you're giving away. What are you doing? Yeah. Chuck Tanner was a manager. He figured that was the one way they were going to win. That was going to be their their secret weapon was their stolen bases. And the 76 team was good. Um, it, they had a chance to finish in first place against the Royals that year. But remember during the summer when they traded Joe Rudy and Raleigh Fingers and Vita Blue and those three players, the trades never they got canceled by Bowie Coon, but those players basically sat out for two weeks. In those two weeks, you didn't have three of your best players. You lost some ball games. You ended up losing the American League West by two and a half games. You don't think those two weeks mattered? Uh, that 76 team could have won their sixth straight American League West title. Eventually, Phil Gardner was traded to the Pirates in a huge trade in March of 77. The A's ended up getting Rick Lankford, Tony Armas, Mitchell Page. It was a nine-player deal. Uh, but Phil Gardner, A's second baseman, later became the Brewers' manager, hired Bob Melvin as a, as a bench coach at that time. And Bob always always talks about Phil Gardner, brought Phil Gardner back a few years ago. Remember, he was around the club a lot because of what he could do, but few people remember, he came up. He was your A's second baseman in 75 and 76. All righty, we're now getting to the top five. We're getting down to it. Top 10 A's second baseman of all time. It's A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We have Dave Feldman, we like to call one of our A's historian. Works for Major League Baseball, works for the Pac-12 Network, and also ESPN. Number five. Mike Gallego. Mike Gallego, talk about the underdog coming up, right? A little guy, really not thought of as being able to hit Major League Pitching. Came up for the first time in 1985. Remember seeing him going, who, who is this little short guy? Mike Gallego. This guy's never going to be able to hit up here. Maybe he can walk because he's got a little strike zone. Gallego turned himself into a pretty good hitter and actually increased his average. Every year from 86 to 91, he became a better and better hitter. And he was so important to the A's because Walt Weiss got hurt a lot, unfortunately. So Gallego got more playing time than they thought he would get. Uh, You see him in the World Series. You see him in the playoffs. Remember the game that Roger Clemens got thrown out of in 1990? You know what the big hit in that game? Mike Gallego. He had a huge double after Clemens got thrown out because Gallego was the guy at play at, at bat when that happened. And I always remember Gallego is in the media room post-game, the press conference, and he's looking around thinking, this is the first time I've ever been in a postseason media room. Well, what am I doing here? But, you know, and then Gallego in 1991 played every day as a second baseman, had a career-high 12 homers, drove in 40 runs, and turned that into a three-year deal with the Yankees where he wore number two. He's the last Yankee to wear number two before it's going to be retired for Mr. Derek Jeter. Trivia question for you. Last number two before Jeter, Mike Gallego. So Gallego comes back to the A's in 1990. This is my favorite Mike Gallego story. Comes back in 1995, which is a strike-shortened season, right? Because of the 94 strike had happened. They started the 95 season late, but Gallego's there. We're about midway through May. He's hitting 180, just not hitting at all. So we're at a bar called The Lodge in Chicago. It was one of those bars back in the 90s where media and players and everybody around the game went to and it was pretty rare for the media and players to to drink together but this was the one bar that had happened so everybody's hanging out and mike gallego's there and jim corsi's there and we're talking about the season and we're talking about mike gallego's batting average 
180. And he, he looks at me and goes, what do you think I'm going to hit this year? I say, 180, we're middle age. You're going to hit 218. He's like, 218? He goes, I'll bet you $100 that I hit at least 230. I'm like, you're not hitting 230. You're hitting 180. You're terrible. You're not hitting. I'll take that. Mike Gallego ends up hitting 235. I owe Mike Gallego $100. Did you pay up? You know, I saw him the next year in St. Louis because he actually went to the Cardinals and played for Tony there. And I saw him on the field during batting practice. He looked at me, he smiled, and he just kind of winked at me. Never asked for the money. You know, one of my favorite uh, stories with him was interviewing him when he got not a bobblehead. It was an action figure. Remember, because it was his arm. He was the third base coach. So he was the first ever action figure given away by the A's for a promotion. It was all, you know, the rage has been bobbleheads, but with him, the head wasn't moving. It was an action figure. And I'm like, how do you feel to be, it was pretty funny. How do you feel to be the first action figure in the history of the A's? All right, number four. Number four is Jed Lowry. And Jed Lowry is his 2017 and 2018 season, probably the the two top offensive seasons that we've seen from an, A's sec- an Oakland A's second baseman. You look at 217, or 2017, he had 277, 14 homers, 49 doubles, which is an Oakland record, and an OPA, OPS over 800. And last year, 23 homers, 37 doubles. So you saw his power shift a little bit. He hit more homers than doubles because he was hitting the ball out of the yard, a little more lift on the ball. 99 runs batted in. OPS over 800 again, and an all-star. Uh, Jed Lowry is a second baseman, and we talked about earlier, like offensive second baseman, you didn't think of it, but he put up huge numbers. And he was so important to this team. You know, he was a shortstop when he was with the A's the first time, and we saw his range start, start to lose a little bit. Um, especially you, you go back to the 2014 wildcard game, there was a couple balls up the middle they just couldn't get to. His range wasn't there, and he was having feet problems. When he came back to the A's, you know, his first year back in 2016 didn't go well, but he got his, he got his injured feet fixed. And we saw the difference in him in 27, 2018. He had his base. So his range at second base was very good. Uh, You saw him robbing hits. You saw him turning double plays. But at the plate, as a switch hitter, this guy was a force in these last two years. I I mean, you look back on especially last year, 97 wins, and what Jed Lowry was to do. Now, yeah, he did drop off a bit in the second half. But the A's aren't where they are. Jed Lowry doesn't have that first half where he was just a marvel. Oh, he was a monster in the middle of the order, and it allowed Bob Melvin to to hit him third every single day. And his numbers as a second baseman, I mean, he was an MVP candidate. And, and we still talk about Jed Larry to this day not being here, unfortunately. Hurt the knee, and now has, the, I believe, the hamstring problem. He has not played for the New York Mets, but always rooting for him. The Stanford product, a really good guy, a leader in the clubhouse, and I like that. Number three. Number three is one of my favorites, Tony Phillips. And Tony Phillips, yeah, he was a little bit of a utility guy with the A's when he first came up in 1982 under Billy Martin. Played shortstop, played third base, played second base, played a little bit in the outfield. And he was a very good utility guy. He can go anywhere. But all of a sudden, he started taking over that second base job. Uh, You know, in 83, he played 49 games there, 47 and 84. Had a terrible 85 season. We thought, well, Tony's never going to be anything. But all of a sudden, 86, 87, 88, he's now your second baseman. And in 89, when the A's really started to roll, is when Tony Phillips started playing every day at second base. And you go from the end of mid-September to the end when Tony was there, that team, that 89 A's team, might be one of the best teams in the history of baseball. Between what... Jose was doing, and Mark McGuire, and Carney Lansford, and Ricky Henderson, Dave Henderson. But Tony Phillips was awesome 
at the end of September. Red hot. Red hot through the playoffs. Red hot in the World Series. And, of course, we all remember the last out of that World Series. Tony Phillips makes an unbelievable play, right, diving to his left. And even the call by Lon Simmons, another great play by Tony Phillips because that's all he was doing. He was making great play after great play. And he just became a ball player. Again, huge personality. It's, it's sad when we think about this 89 team, how many members of that team we've already lost uh, with Dave Henderson and Bob Welch and Tony Phillips because he was just so energetic. And, you know, Tony came back to the A's in 1999. It's 40 years old he came back. And he was awesome playing second place, playing in the outfield. He hit on his birthday in April in Baltimore. He hit a big ninth-inning home run in Texas. He makes a game-saving play playing center field. Uh, Just unbelievable. His career ended in one of the worst ways we've seen. We've talked about broken legs before. It was in Toronto sliding into second base. He broke his leg sliding into second base in August and never played another major league game. Ended up playing in the senior league. There was a short senior league in the early 2000s. And we saw Tony would come around a lot. And he was just so good. Such a good man. Uh, Especially when you think about when he first came up with Billy Martin. Billy was really tough on Tony Phillips. He expected so much from him. Because I think Billy saw a little of himself in Tony. The way that Tony played. And he had to overachieve to even be considered. But boy, Tony was great. And he was was a great member of the A's. And just such a huge part of that 89 team. Yeah, and I think leaving the A's, just, you know, we talk about how versatility is so big in baseball today because lack of bench players. I think about whether it was the Angels or the White Sox. I mean, whenever you watched a game, Tony Phillips could be in left, he could be in second, he could be in right. I mean, he really became a super utility player. And if he played today, boy, how valuable he would be today. He was huge. And you know who did it? He went to the Tigers after the A's and Sparky Anderson who was the manager at the time. So, Tony, you're going to play every day, but you're going to play in a different position every day. And Tony became a power hitter then with the Tigers, uh, playing every position. He went to the Angels later, same thing, every position. White Sox, every position. He was so valuable, and you're right, because you're only having three men bench now. You need players who can play all over the diamond. So you have a switch hitter who can play incredible defense everywhere at every position. Tony Phillips would be making a lot of money as a utility guy, and he hated that term utility guy, but that's what he was when he he left the A's, and he was fantastic at it, and he really set the bar. All right, we only have two left. There's two big names out there. One guy has a lot of rings, and one guy was uh, definitely one of the great A's second basemen of all time. Who is number two? Yeah, both these last two guys are from South Dakota. I mean, what's the odds on that? South Dakota is not a great baseball hotbed, but the A's two top second basemen both there, and number two for me is Dick Green. And Dick Green started his career with the A's in Kansas City and came with the A's, but he was their starting second baseman in all three World Series. Uh, Probably would have won the 1974 World Series MVP award if he had just gotten one hit. He went 0 for 13, and I don't think voters felt comfortable giving an MVP to somebody who didn't get a hit, so they ended up going to Raleigh Fingers. But you talk to a man, and even Raleigh will say, the A's don't win that World Series in five games without Dick Green's contributions to defense. You watch those highlights, and you watch him get take out, taken out at second base. I mean, these guys, Bill Buckner, just running right through him. Because the rules then, a lot different. You can take these guys out. And Dick Green just stood up, took it, made the throw, completed the double play. He was so good defensively and so craftsman at second base. He could do so much with his, with his footwork, with his arm. Uh, you know, he had some injury problems. He had bad back. 
that, that curtailed his career a little bit. You know, he missed most of the 1972 season because he had a herniated disc, but he comes back, plays. But this is where Charlie Finley gets involved, too, because Charlie decides that he doesn't like any of his second baseman offensively, and he's going to pinch hit for his second baseman every time they come up. Game one of the ALCS versus the Tigers, Dick Green starts, doesn't even get to get one at bat. They pinch hit for him in the first at bat. Then you see that it went through this way. Finally, I think Dick Williams talked some sense into Charlie when they got to the World Series. I mean, we need Dick Green on the field as much as possible making plays because that's how he's going to win us games. Dick Green, I was talking to some of the old beat writers from back in the day, and Dick Green every year would threaten to retire. They'd get to March, and Dick Green would not show up in spring training. I'm done with this. I'm going to go home to South Dakota. I'm just going to start my moving company, and I'm going to live my life. And every year, just before the season would begin, Dick Green would roll into camp, play second base, and the A's would win a World Series. Finally, after 1974, he legitimately retired, and that's how we got Phil Garner. Yeah, three rings. No question about it. Very, very special. And number one, there's a moment that this guy had that I, I will never forget. But what a, an incredible leader he was for this organization. Number one. Number one is Mark Ellis. Ellie. 2002 to 2011. Acquired uh, in the same trade with Tampa Bay and Kansas City that brought the A's Johnny Damon and Corey Lytle. This was an unbelievable trade. You think about it, the A's gave up Ben Greve. Angel Barroa and A.J. Hinch, and they got back Mark Ellis, Johnny Damon, and Corey Lytle. That's a fantastic trade, uh, especially for the A's. In uh, June of 2002, he takes over as the everyday second baseman, finishes eighth in the Rookie of the Year, hits a huge home run in Game 5 of the 2002 playoffs against the Twins uh, that cut the lead. It was a three-run ninth inning homer. Um, Unfortunately, not enough. You know, he misses the entire 2004 season. Missed the entire season because right near the end of spring training, he has a collision with Bobby Crosby, who was going to take over his shortstop. Tore his labrum in his right shoulder. Misses the entire year. And that's how, really, the A's got Marco Scudero, which he's going to be on another list than another time. Uh, <laughs> but then he comes back in 2005. 2006, he has two errors the entire season. Two errors and 632 chances. That is a second baseman fielding percentage record. Did not win the goal glove. Mark Renzelanek won the gold glove, who made four errors. Robbery. To this day, robbery. But in 2006, in the ALDS, uh, he got his finger broken trying to bunt a ball in Minnesota, missed the a- ALCS, which was a huge loss for the A's. You know, the A's got swept in that by the Tigers. Not having Mark Ellis really hurt them. They had D'Angelo Jimenez playing second base. They had Mark Kiger, who had never played a major league regular season game was on the roster, made his Major League debut in the postseason. Never happened before. All because Mark Ellis got hurt. 2007, he comes back, probably his best year ever, 276, 19 homers, 33 doubles, 76 runs batted in, hits for the cycle here at the Coliseum against the Red Sox. He was Mark Ellis. A's second baseman, 8, 9, 10. He's everyday Mark. You can always count on him. He's a great player, a great leader. Uh, Finally, in 2011, the A's had Jamal Weeks. And they had to make a decision what they were going to do. And they decided that Jamal Weeks was their future. That's who was going to be their, their second baseman. And they ended up trading uh, Mark Ellis to the Rockies, which is still a sad day. And if you talk to Bob Melvin, you talk to the A's brass, it was one of the saddest days here at the Coliseum when they had to say goodbye to Mark Ellis. That's how much he was loved here. Was it a good decision to bring in Jamal Weeks? 
at the time, it, it made sense because Jamal Weeks looked like he was going to be a very good, very good player, and he had a good 2011 season. But history has a way of evening things out, and looking back, you go, they could have used Mark Ellis for a few more years. My favorite Mark Ellis story is from that day. Mark Ellis knew he was getting traded. He knew he was going to the Colorado Rockies. He, it was root beer float day. He still walked all the way out to the East Side Club, Mount Davis, and scooped ice cream for the fans for over an hour and knew he was being traded and he would not be an A. And I remember seeing him at spring training, and I, and I went up to him and told him, that's the classiest thing I think I've ever seen in professional sports. A guy that's being dealt, but he cared so much about you, the fans, that he still walked out there and scooped ice cream for A's fans because that's how much he loved you. It's one of the great stories I, I, I've ever heard of in sports. It's so classy, and it's just so Mark Ellis. I mean, he gets it. He always got it, even when he first came up here. He just had that way about carrying himself. He understood what Major League Baseball was about. He was a gamer. He played through injury. He was clutch. And just, you know, he saw a lot with the A's, man. And starting with the Art Howe years through Bob, uh, Ken Maka, Bob Guerin, Bob Melvin. I mean, he's, he's one of the few guys who played for all four of those guys. And he was such a huge part of this organization and the winning in this organization. And what he taught a lot of the players who helped in that 2012 season, uh, just class, pure class. And that's why it's so nice to see him back now a lot of a lot of the times for the reunions, spring training. He's part of this team, and he has so much to offer because he's such a rock-solid guy. All right, go down to your top ten one more time. Quickly, number ten is Frank Menachino. Number nine, Brent Gates, Gator. Number eight, Randy Velarde. Number seven, Davey Lopes. Number six, Phil Garner, number five, Mike Gallego, number four, Jed Lowry, number three, Tony Phillips, number two, Dick Green, and the number one second baseman in Oakland Athletics history, Mark Ellis. Top 10 second baseman of all time. You've been listening to A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend and David Feldman right here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.